Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God for the word of God. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, he, the Roman Catholic priest, nailed 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. Uh, this, is, this was kind of the practice of the day, uh, that of the social media somewhat, to project your concerns out into the community. And in this case, his concern was regarding the Roman Catholic abuses around the eternally serious issues of justification, how to be made right uh, with God. So he was protesting. And so that act is considered the beginning of the Protestant, you hear the word protest, and that the Protestant uh, Reformation. So if you ever wonder why those children dress up on October 31st, all kinds of costumes, and they come to your door and knock and say, trick or treat, they're all celebrating Reformation Day. <laughs> well, at least that's how I'm interpreting it. It, it was out of this pre- Protestant Reformation that we have the five sole, the sola scriptura, sola gratia, f- uh, sola fide, sola Christus, uh, soli deo gloria, scripture alone, by grace alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. These became foundational doctrines. Um, we, we just came off of a five-week series, reformed, always reforming, placing our focus on these, on these doctrines. Well, the Protestant Reformation wasn't just about a recovery of these key theological concepts, as if somehow they were separated from everyday life, but rather it was a recovery of the gospel for all of life particularly home life. So Martin Luther understood his role as the head of the home and what he called his little church. And so he recognized that Scripture taught that his first responsibility was to his little church, made up of his wife and his children. And it is still true today, heads of homes, uh, primarily men, although I recognize we have single mothers and spiritually single mothers who are of the spiritual heads of their homes, uh, that we are, they are responsible to shepherd their little church. And one of the important places that we can be doing this is we can be doing this at our dinner table. Um, the dinner table is where we learn to enjoy God and his good gifts together. And it's not just a place to simply get fueled up, but it is a place to slow down and again redirect in a busy day to reject, redirect our gaze to the Heavenly Father and linger together unrushed and unhurried. And so like our gathering here, it is a place to, in a sense, reset again in this case, every single day to remind ourselves of where we fit within this universe. If you don't know how to lead a simple table liturgy, I would recommend uh, Pastor Justin's ebook, Gospel Dad, Chapter 8. And he goes through a simple liturgy that can occur at the dinner table. Well, Advent 
is the season to create such a habit within your home. Your family is sentimentally primed right now. Sentimentally primed to make this season special. And so you can make this season special each Sunday at your table with an Advent wreath, some candles, a simple reading and prayer. And then each night you can read to your children uh, a, a devotional, an Advent devotional. And it takes about, if you think about it, it takes about four weeks to create any kind of habit. And so here's an opportunity to create in four weeks something that your family is going to want around the table anyway. And you can create a habit, which then you can con- continue to carry on into the, into the new year. And so I would encourage you to use this season to create this new habit uh, for your family, your little church. Well, the Advent season, in this Advent season, we're taking on another uh, Reformation motto, and that is the post-Tenebras Lux or after-darkness light motto. The Protestant Reformation was a time of great light in the recovery of these five sole after centuries of darkness within Catholicism. So in concert with our focus on these great truths and taking up this theme, post-Tenebras Lux, during this Advent season, we're going to specifically look at four different passages within the, the, within the book of uh, Genesis stories uh, where there's a time of darkness, but light is able to come in to bring hope and clarity and anticipation to us all as we live in our own period of darkness. Because as in every generation before us, heresies and immorality are constantly trying to push back on the edges, if you will, of the kingdom of God to try to take over ground again. And so it's our church's responsibility, it is the church's responsibility to always be seeking to discover, rediscover the light which we will, which will always overcome. And we confidently say that, say that in from John chapter 1, verse 5, which says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Good news. Let's pray in that good news. So, Father, thank you that there is light in the darkness, and that, Father, your light is one which you promise will never be overcome, but that there will be victory in your kingdom because of the light of life in, our person, in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray today as we come here with all kinds of darkness. Father, we come from a world of darkness and we come from situations that are dark. Father, we pray that you will give us hope, uh, not in ourselves, not in our situations, um, but that you would give us hope in who you are. So we would pray, help us to see a little bit clearer just who you are. Um, And then apply that, Father, to our lives, we pray this day. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the word Advent means coming. And in this season of year, we focus on the meaning of the coming of the Son of God into the world as we've already talked about, as we already yet not yet. uh, What is it? Already. Already what? 
And yet, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Sorry about that. Already, but not yet. We, as we're in this season, we're in this season of darkness, looking forward to his second coming. And so this morning, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and I want us to consider just how much hope we have in our dark places. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, I am sure you can find it. We live in general in a, war, in a world that is um, set against God, um, against obedience to God. We live generally in a world of, of darkness, and the, so therefore none of us are in uh, are exempt from this. And so I know that this morning uh, we come with different types of darknesses, particularly uh, in, in maybe some of these ways, uh, particularly as we think about our pastoral welcome. Uh, you really do feel worthless this morning. And wonder if God cares. You have failed. And the regret of perhaps the empty nester here, the regret of, of how you failed in your parenting and this Thanksgiving has been a reminder again of the estrangements. Or you this past week have sinned in that same way. In that same way that you sinned last week and you said at that time last week, I'm never going to do that again. And yet you've done it again. Or perhaps your dark place is one where you hunger and thirst for righteousness in your life. In other words, you wish that you were more patient and kind and long-suffering. But rather than being patient and kind and long-suffering, you're impatient and you're critical and you're unforgiving. Or perhaps your dark place is in a child of yours, an adult child of yours, who has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, rejected God's good uh, life, good way to life, uh, to, and so they're, they're living it for their own pleasures. Or perhaps they're living a life of success as measured by an all-consuming career. Or perhaps your dark place is within your own community of faith, Within your own MC in which you have an individual within your MC who struggles with a, a, an identity that is not uh, true to the gospel, an identity in which they continue to bring in and know just what to say or how to say it and uh, to explode your MC once again. And you wonder, is there any hope? Or perhaps outside the family of faith, a friend or a co-worker or a family member in whom you've been on mission for years and there seems to be no hope. Or perhaps you are a parent of a teenager or, or, a, teen, or, or, or a college student and you know the world that they are living in. They're growing up in a world that is increasingly and unapologetically hostile uh, to our Christian faith. And you wonder if there is any hope if they, that they will walk with Jesus Christ. And so the list can go on and on and on. As many people as here, uh, is here and you know where you need hope. Advent reminds us that there is a God-sized hope for our dark places. And we see this in creation and in the fall and in redemption. So Genesis chapter 1, the God-sized hope in creation 
It is here in creation where we find a pattern where God speaks, he separates, and then he sees. And so look what we have here, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks into the dark. Now, how dark was it? Well, look what he says, how he describes it there in verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. We might want to say it was profound. (laughs) Profound darkness. The dark. And our dark places can be described this way. Our dark places can be described, as is described here, as uninhabitable uninhabitable. You wonder in your own dark place, I don't know if I can live much longer in this darkness. Well, the Hebrew word for without form is described elsewhere in the Old Testament as a place where life cannot be sustained. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18, Isaiah, he explains why God actually created uh, and why he spoke into the darkness. He says, uh, for thus says Yahweh who created the heavens, he is God, who formed, there's our word on the positive side, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed, here's our word again, he formed it for this purpose, to be inhabited. His intended creation was to form the world, the earth, in such a way that humanity could truly live. And so that. Without God's hand in creation, the world was a place that was uninhabitable, and that's not surprising there. The second word we, is, we, we hear is void, or we could say just simply empty, an empty life. Our dark places are empty. Woody Allen, the famed director, said, the artist's job is not to, to, to succumb to despair, but to find an antidote for the emptiness of existence. Sam Shepard, he was an actor and director. He said, the funny thing about having all this so-called success is that behind it is a certain horrible emptiness. And it's not hard to find a list of these kind of quotes of people in whom from one perspective we see, that we see great success, whether it be in entertainment or whether it be in business or in some other form, and we see this great success, but then they pull back a little bit of the veil of their lives, and what we discover is that they too are feeling this profound emptiness, dark places. And we know of our own dark places that they are places of emptiness. And they are also places of great mysterious fear. Mysterious fear. Um, the ancients, when describing a place of fear, they would, they would speak of the abyss that was found out within the oceans. Uh, there, this was a place of dread or fear uh, for the unknown uh, deeps of the waters. Uh, they, they wondered, what is, what is down there? And so it, to help to kind of grab a hold of this mysterious uh, fear that they had. They thought of, well, this is an abyss. This is a place where uh, it's dark and I don't know what's down there. And this is really the source of, in one sense, they think is, is evil. Um, 
And I think we understand what they're getting at because um, if you're like me, I, I grew up in a neighborhood uh, that had a pool. We, we had a neighborhood public pool and one of the, uh, the uh, right, uh, rites of passage was for us to go out into the deep end and for us to go down in 12 feet deep, go down to the bottom of the pool and touch the drain. <laughs> yeah, ah, uh, Fear, uh, there's fear. I'm, I'm, I'm 12 feet away from that life-giving breath. But even worse, touching the drain. What's down there? What's below the drain, <laughs> right? Or perhaps you've done it this way, and that is you've gone out into a lake, and you've got on a boat, and you get into the middle of the lake, and you jump out into the water, and you're treading water there, and you have, at, just for a second, you have that, that thought I wonder what's down there. There's a level of fear. And you magnify this by thousands, and, and perhaps you are getting the sense of the fear the ancients had when it came to uh, there in verse to the deep. Um, that word can also be translated the abyss. It was a place of mysterious fear. And this mysterious fear covered the earth. There was no place to go to escape this kind of darkness. It is profound darkness. So the account of creation was that the earth was a place that was uninhabitable, empty, and of mysterious fear. And so we are to take of this account a place of profound darkness. It was, it was dark, and the reason it was dark was simply because it was an absence of light. Light had yet to be created. This is darkness. And yet, in the face of that darkness, look who's there in the verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The third person of the Trinity is pictured as one which is protecting and anticipating a wonderful creative form to this formless void and dark condition. It, it, it's, kind of, uh, it's the kind of watchful care of an eagle over its young. And I know that because Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning verse 10 all the way through verse 12, Moses, he writes a song, and he writes a song at the end of his career. It's about the time when God's people are going to go into the promised land. And so he has a song that he wants them to sing. And part of that song, he says this, he found in him, speaking of God, God found in him, speaking of Jacob and, his, uh, and, and those who came after him, he found in him in a desert, desert land, an uninhabitable land, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. And that world wilderness is the same word that we have for formless. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young. Same word, hovering over. We have the Holy Spirit hovering over this dark, uninhabitable world. It flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them up in on its pinions. The third person is not responding out of this 
out of control darkness, but rather we find the Trinity not reacting, but rather in control, acting in the face of this darkness. So back to our passage. What we find here is is that we find the first thing he does is God speaks. God speaks, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He speaks into our darkness. Uh, Here uh, is the first of a series of he speaks, or God said, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26. God said, God said, that has a creative force like none other, out of nothing, which separates us all, uh, the creation from the creator. It makes God the one who is holy. When we say holy, we speak of not only his purity, but we also speak of the fact that he is an other than. And this is one place where we really get the idea that he is other than because what he does is he takes the raw resource of nothing and he makes it into something. By faith, Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Taking the raw resource of nothing, God speaks. And God is, is in his wisdom, set apart words as a means to have, uh, to have a creative force to create what is necessary for life. God speaks and light exists. God speaks into the dark. But God does an interesting thing in creation, and that is that also God separates. We see that in the second part of verse 4 there. Uh, Second part, verse 4. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So it's interesting there that the darkness actually doesn't go away, but rather light becomes present. And the verb, uh, the verb separate is used five times in this chapter, four, uh, verse six, seven, 14, and 18. He separates the light from the darkness we just saw there. He separates the water in the clouds from the water on the earth to create an expanse. He separates the light uh, of the sun and moon and thus day and night. And then there's another separation he does, and that is that he creates a man and a woman. So the first two chapters reveal that in creation, when God is the one who's doing the separating, The result is goodness and beauty, that there is a separation that actually brings uh, order. And the first separation and order found in our verse is that it creates a rhythm. God has created a rhythm. And here's what's important. The rhythm is not first dependent dependent upon creation, But rather, the rhythm is dependent upon the creator. See, the sun and the moon and the stars have not been created yet and and are not in their place in this rhythm. Their place hasn't been carved out yet. That doesn't happen until the fourth day. No, God is the direct source of light. He is the light, and he will one day again be our direct source of light. 
And we sang about that in that last song uh, after the profession of uh, faith. Uh, The Apostle John writes in Revelation 22 about the city of God, and he writes this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will need no light or lamp or sun, (laughs) for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So when I'm praying for those who are in dark places, I pray that they first will experience God, the light of God, that they will experience the glory of God in this darkness, whatever that darkness is that they are experiencing at that moment. Now, I may pray also that God would remove the darkness, but what I'm seeing in the created order is that God doesn't remove the darkness, but rather what God does is he actually brings light into the darkness. That the Holy Spirit is present, that the Holy Spirit is hovering, that as we heard in Alexis' testimony, God is there. (laughs) God speaks, God separates, and then the third thing that we see in created order, he God sees, God sees that it is good. And so what we see in in verse 4 of our passage is that God saw that the light was good. Just like there's a series of God said, so there's a series of God saw. So verse 4, 9, 12, 18, 21, 25, 31. See, there's a pattern within the first chapter where God speaks, something is created. Sometimes things are separated. And then the writer makes a comment about what has just been created and God sees it and he says, it is, no, 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 I, I misspoke. God sees, it is good. And see, the way I misspoke, as I said, God sees it. And then he says, you know, you notice there, he never says anything like that. He only sees, God sees, it is good. And what this is getting at is that it's not just simple visual perception, but rather God, in the, he does an evaluation. When he sees, he evaluates, he judges, God knows what is really good. And it's interesting, this word good, because it refers to benefits. It's a benefit for his creation, particularly for humanity. So on this uninhabitable, empty, dark canvas, God is this master painter providing what is necessary for life, a place to be filled, a place of light, and thus the word of God is more than just simply utilitarian good. It is a word that speaks of beauty. The goodness is in its beauty, and so it is artistry, not simply functionality. And so the purpose of the repetition of God sees it as good is to drill into us that what is good, what is beautifully beneficial, comes out of his own goodness. That the beautifully beneficial is an overflow of his of his goodness to us. Over and over, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. You would hope that at the end of the chapter, we would say, I bet God's got something good for us. See, the entire chapter, God is being depicted as one who knows what is good for the man, knows what's good for the woman, and is intent on providing only what is good, And the light was good. 
And there is a God-sized hope in, crea- in, in creation. Advent reminds us that there is a God-sized hope in our dark place. And what I find amazing about God's creativity and his creative story is that at the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, he has given us a mandate. And he's given us a mandate to be creative. So, so some of you here are amazing um, in your calligraphy. And, and some of you take images and communicate ideas much like we find on our backdrops. And some of you can paint scenes on canvas that take us back to the place in Colorado where there, where's the original. And some of you can take notes, musical notes, and creatively put them together to create beautiful sounds. But creativity goes beyond this more obvious to those of you who can, correct, who can craft a sentence and a paragraph and an essay with an economy of words to express understandable, uh, relatable concepts. Some of you can take metal and heat and create not only solid but beautiful welds. And some of you can take the extremely dangerous electricity and you can cause it to flow through our homes or businesses for really good purposes. And some of you can take barely intelligible concepts and patter them in such a way that students are able to make sense of them sitting there before you in the classroom. And the list can go on and on and on of all the callings that we have within this room. We've been given this creative mandate. And so God uh, created man in his image. And in in that image, he has given him an opportunity to fill the earth with God's goodness. And so the the story continues. Before the woman was made, out of the the man, uh, before the woman was made, the man man was there. And we find in chapter 2, these words in in verse 15. So turn to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, in the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, did anybody recognize that, by the way? Romans chapter 11, verse 33, last week's message. Ah, curse it. Okay. Well, we did that, right? We did that verse last week. So out of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, I explained to you last week this, that the wisdom and knowledge refers to God's ability to select the best means for the attainment of the highest goal. So there's no better plan than the one that he has. And so in that plan, it included both man's free will and the presence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what God was asking the man to do was to trust him. What God was asking humanity to do, men and women, is to trust him to trust him that he knows what is good and that he knows what is evil and that he will speak to them, he will tell them what is good and they just need to, they can trust in him. And they should because you all laughed when you heard the words, oh, we hear it's good, it is good, it's good, it's good, it's good. By the end of that, we should think he's, we should know he's good. And so he said, out of my goodness, out of the overflow of my goodness, I will tell you what is good and evil. So don't eat of that tree because I have riches, a treasury of which I know everything. I'm infinite and so I can tell you what is good and evil. 
But what if they didn't trust him? Or maybe you need to be asking yourselves, what if my own dark place is a result of my directly disobedience of God's commands? Is there any hope for me who didn't trust God or don't trust God? Well, there's a God-sized hope in the fall. (laughs) See, we turn to the third chapter and we have this creature who's clearly not good. Something has happened to God's created order. We're not exactly sure what happened there, but he comes in the form of a snake. And again, we see some creative pattern going on here. Uh, First of all, uh, we hear words. uh, We speak. Now the serpent was more crafty, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said, he used words. He, He said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, yeah, we may eat of the tree of the fruits uh, or the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle, in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent, look at there, said, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, words create. And so this evil one, he creates this this doubt. He creates unbelief. He creates this wondering, does really God have your good in mind? So words do create. And we got to be careful how we use words. See, this is what God was intending. God was intending that we would be creative, but that we would not go, that we would use the resource of God's word as the means to create spiritual life. But we got to be careful how we use God's word. And so in this case, the woman, she misspoke. She added to God's word. She put more of a prohibition on what God had said than God had really truly said. And so it created doubts. It created unbelief. And so we see what happens here in this creative order. So then we see something. Then the eyes, uh, sorry, verse, uh, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of her own husband who was with her and he ate. See, she saw, she saw the possibilities of moral autonomy and came to the conclusion that there was freedom. There's freedom to determine what is right and wrong in my own eyes and what is, what is good. And the man agreed. They saw. And a separation occurred. But rather than toward order, this is one that went to disorder. Man and woman from God man and woman from one another, man from the enjoyment of fruitfulness. And so we have the darkness of the soul. Is there a God-sized hope in the fall? (laughs) God speaks. Yes. We come to verses 14 and 15. And so the Lord God speaks to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring 
and her offspring. Now, what I find what's so amazing about that is that God says, oh no, they're still on my team. <laughs> There's enmity. You're the enemy. I'm going to put, put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. There's going to be one that's going to come from the woman, the one from this, the seed of this woman. There's the beauty of women having the ability to bear children. They have the special privilege of being the one who, the one was going to come who's going to bring a Savior. And so this one who is going to be the Savior, he says, the promise is he shall bruise your head. There's going to be a fatal blow that's going to occur and going to destroy you. And yes, it shall come at a cost. You shall bruise his hill. Oh, is there hope in the fall? Oh, yes, there is, because God speaks. And he speaks out of his goodness. So he sees the condition of humanity and realizes that he needs to protect them and separate them. You go down to verse 32. The Lord God said, behold, he sees. He sees the condition of humanity. Now, now they're in this state of brokenness, of a fallenness, and he realizes that if they, they touch this tree of life, they will be in that state of brokenness and fallenness for all eternity like the enemy. And so what does he do? He separates them from this. In his grace, he separates them from this tree. So now he says, lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever in this terribly broken, awful state. Therefore, those are my words. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life because he has a plan. He has a plan to continue to speak to the man and the woman and give them grace. Advent reminds us that there is a God-sized hope for our dark places, even our fallen places. And that God-sized hope is worked out in redemption. So we need to turn now to the New Testament, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 1. And it's his disciple, John, who God uses to show us ultimately how Genesis 1 is to be understood in terms of the spiritual darkness found both inside and outside of our hearts. See, the first three words of John 1 makes the connection back to creation. In the beginning. And guess who was there? In the beginning was the word. God speaks. Now he's speaking in a way that we never could have imagined. He's not just speaking in words. Now he is speaking in a person, through a person. Uh, we hear it. In the beginning was the word. Now notice here, the word was with God. And so he's distinct from God. And yet he is also personally related to God. And the word was with God. And the word was God. We have the third person of the Trinity, or second person in our order. Uh, we have God the Father uh, that we understand in Genesis chapter 1, we, uh, verse 1. And we have God the Son in Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 3. And now we have the Son. They're all present. They were all present at this moment in which God is taking this profound darkness and bringing light. And for this purpose, in order that we might understand that on this profound darkness that we have now, the spiritual darkness, we have a God who speaks. And he speaks into our darkness. And this is what we discover about him. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light 
of men. In other words, as light is necessary for physical life, so light is necessary for spiritual life. And so the light shines in the darkness. Oh yes, and there is a separation again. The darkness has not overcome it because God is able to separate those who are his from darkness and call them their own. We call them saints. Saints set apart once, set apart by God, taken out of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. God is one who speaks and he is one who separates and he's the one who helps us to see. Before we go to that uh, 2 Corinthians passage, let me just show you uh, John chapter 1, verses, verse 14 and 18, just in case we haven't caught the understanding of the incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> we, we've been reading about you, God. We've been reading about who you are. You've given us words. And so we've been reading and we've been absorbing those words. But ultimately, how do we truly understand you? And God said, I will show you. I will become you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son, second person of the Trinity, from the Father. And this is what we discovered. He's full of grace and truth. Our God is full of grace and truth. Look, look down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Well, that's a problem. Ah, not so. The only God who is at the Father's side, He, God the Son, has made Him known. God speaks through the living Word, the Word made flesh to give us hope in our dark places. And this is what he does in his creative way. Now we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is what he does in his uh, creative way. He helps us see. <laughs> he helps us see. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now that would be really bad news if we had the end there because what it seems to be saying is that there is no hope because we've got this, there's this God of the world, our enemy, who's blinding the minds of, of those uh, so they cannot see the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then Paul refers back to Genesis chapter one, verse three, when he writes these words, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the same God who spoke light into the world is the same God who's able to speak light of the gospel into our hearts. <laughs> and you notice there that Paul includes himself in this. He says, God has done this for us. He's shown the, God's, the gospel into our hearts. And so he recognizes that he was blinded to the good news of Jesus Christ, but God spoke into his life. You know, it's, it is the gospel, um, the, 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 same, the, the same word of God that, uh, that, that speaks, uh, he uses somebody, he uses us to do something, and that is he uses us now to use words. And so he uses us to speak 
the good news of Jesus Christ in order to bring life. See, Paul gives us this great assurance in Romans 10. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on and says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Or Peter reminds us of how we're born again. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so what we do for those outside the community of, community of faith is we go in the hope of a God who is able to speak light into darkness, to take nothing, no faith, and make it faith. And we do that by also speaking to them. We speak to them the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, we preach. You preach. We're all preachers. We preach the good news that was preached to us. But what about us who are inside the community of faith as we stare into the darkness of our own souls? Well, we pray that God will shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we pray that he will speak into the darkness of our own souls. So we continue to pray for light. And then what do we do? Well, we speak the word of God into our hearts. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so we speak truth. We continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, to teach and to speak truth to one another. We speak with the creative force of words that is good for building up one another as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So Advent does remind us of something. <laughs> and that is that we have a God-sized hope for our dark places. It was, an, it was at night when Jesus was having the Passover and he took some bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Eat. And then he took some wine and he poured it and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. A new covenant, new promise. It was a reminder to us that he had come to be the light to be the one who would shine the light of life into the hearts and souls of men and women. And so as we take this supper, we're reminded again, we have hope. You have hope. We have hope for those who are lost that we love. And we have hope for our own souls and for those in whom are part of the body of, faith, body of Christ that there is hope. God will continue to speak and separate and help us see the good news. Father, thank you. Thank you for the season. Pray, Father, that you would give hope this morning where there is no hope. We pray, Father, that you would do just like you did at creation. You took nothing and made it into something. God, you've done that for each one of us who have placed faith in Jesus Christ. We had no faith. You gave us faith. We had no life, no spiritual life. You gave us spiritual life. We cried out to you. Father, we continue to cry out to you. Give us faith to believe that you are good.
to trust you and to have hope in the dark places that you have us. Shine your light, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.